Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. are here with another in our series of person on the street interviews and the other day the door opened to the ag art studio and heather roller anna mixus and katie moser walked in and they are faculty and students from colgate university and they are on an interesting mission they are here doing field research in the history of toxic environments and pesticides in particular. So welcome, Heather. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Welcome, Katie. <laughs> thank you. And, and Anna. Hi, thank you. OK. So go back to basics. Heather, you teach history looking at environmental topics and you're looking at toxic environments. So what brought you to that avenue of history? Um, so I'm a historian and I sort of have come into this field of environmental history slowly. Um, I actually started uh, with indigenous history of Brazil and Amazonia. So um, this is kind of a, a new field to think about US environmental history. And I just started this about a year ago. Um, but I would say what interests me is thinking about how uh, humans and the environment are like reciprocal influences on one another. And you can actually think of them as both actors in history. Um, you can think of the environment as having a role in history. And I just started reading more and more in that field. And I started reflecting on some of the environmental changes that I have witnessed over my years of working in Brazil and the Amazon, which, you know, have been quite dramatic. Um, since the year 2000, which is when I first went there, uh, actually as an undergraduate student, uh, about the age of, of my students who are sitting here today. Um, and so in trying to make sense of that, and also trying to understand how indigenous peoples in that region of the world have shaped their environments for millennia, uh, I started to um, really just gravitate more and more to thinking about these themes. And I guess I would say that, um, the reason why I wanted to do a US-based project that had to do with agriculture, agricultural history, and the role of pesticides in our environment um, is just because I really wanted to work on a topic closer to home. Uh, you know, when I went to Brazil and the Amazon, uh, you know, I don't have family ties there. I was researching in Portuguese, which is not my native language. Uh, and 
I was always an outsider kind of looking in at a, at a great distance. Um, and, you know, I tried as hard as I could to bridge that distance, but at a certain point I, I thought it would be a really different kind of research to, uh, to work on something, you know, in, in my home state of California, in the state where I live now, which is New York, uh, and also to get to know parts of the United States like Iowa that uh, I'm not familiar with at all. And yet, you know, there's a lot of common history there. So um, I'm still an outsider in some ways in Iowa, for example, but, um, but I'm, uh, in other ways, I'm, I'm really close to this history in ways that are interesting to me. What's the process then of a historian uh, who is within that same era and environment? You know, when you're looking at Brazil, I would think it would be a little bit easier because you'd have cultural distance mm -hmm. from it. Mm -hmm. Is there um, a process that you go through when you're, you know, up close and personal to the subject matter that you're taking on now? Yeah, I actually do think it's like a different set of challenges when you have a personal connection as a scholar to the topic that you're working on. Um, I do think I'm, I mean, I think you get emotionally entangled with anything that you spend years studying. Uh, and I care an immense amount about Brazil now, just having you know, invested much of my career in understanding the challenges that it faces and the you know, past and present. Uh, and I care a lot about the colleagues and the people that I've met in Brazil, but uh, I, I just think it's a different set of emotional entanglements when you're studying uh, your own country's history um, and when even like your own family history intersects in some ways with the, with the history that you're studying. And um, how about you, Anna? What brought you to this topic of environmental history? Well, I took a class with Professor Roller, Global Toxic History, but I guess part of the reason I wanted to take that class comes from I grew up in a town in like suburban Massachusetts that used to uh, have a Superfund site. Actually, I think it's still an active Superfund site. Um, and my family has lived in that town uh, for a couple generations. And so the experience of like the contamination um, and a cancer cluster has been something that, like, these people who um, passed away and who were activists around this these kinds of environmental, like, health concerns were uh, people that my mom and my uncles had grown up with and were really close with. So it was kind of, in that way, like, something I'd always been thinking about and... Um, I guess that's what kind of brought me to Professor Roller's class. And then from there, here we are. From there, it's on to Iowa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Katie, tell us about your interest in this field. Um, well, I've also taken a class with Professor Roller. Mine was Intro to Environmental History. But I sort of came to that thinking about, like, animal history and the places of animals in, the, like, the historical record, historical documents and stuff like that. So I've just completed a project of my own um, about the transition in between using horses um, in, like, cities and urban spaces um, towards a more mechanized sort of feature, sort of stuff like that. But, yeah. Horses, that's... a Interesting topic, as they go by the door here. Yeah. But, you know, 
lots of times I sit here and think about the animals in this environment. You know, once there were woolly mammoths on this very spot. And um, so we have layers and layers of animals, humans, geology, changes, geological changes that have occurred here, and, and habitats. And so now we're in radical change mode. You just walk through the door, through the smoke of the, and it's really, this is the worst smoky day I've experienced here. And it's not uh, pleasant to have the smoke coming down from Canada. And most of the United States has experienced it now. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, climate change has become real for people. A lot of people um, that have been denying it all of a sudden when they're having to stuff towels under the cracks of their doors to keep smoke out, maybe, maybe um, this is happening. So when does, is that what happens? Like all of a sudden people get sick, they drop dead or something. Is that what happens when we finally have a reckoning? Because in my experience, we just deny that any of these things are going on <laughs> until, you know, until there's a definite breaking point that we say we are in a toxic environment or we are in climate change or we are we do have a problem. I mean when when does that uh shift? I mean, you know, it can it it's not only environmental things like um during COVID, for example, we had huge numbers of people like, oh, no, this is not a problem. It's all just going to disappear. You know, we had that going on. And then we had people that were kind of over the edge on the other end, um, you know, st saying that we're all going to perish from COVID. So through history, where do we become, where do we become aware? I'll ask, I'll ask you that, Heather. Sure. Um, well, one thing we talk about in my classes is the fact that when you think about moments of reckoning, uh, we talk about how some groups of people have had to reckon earlier and, and more urgently with these problems than other groups. So indigenous peoples, for example, have been dealing with environmental crises for a really long time you know, since the, the advent of, of, you know, colonialism. And uh, they have, I think, a really um, deep sense of, of different methods of, of coping and adapting to those problems and, and dealing with them collectively often. Um, and, and other groups of people come to that moment of reckoning later, and, and maybe after many years of, of denial, like you said. Uh, and I also think in my classes, we talk about this concept, which I did not come up with. This is something that other scholars have written about. Uh, Alex Steffen, I think, is the guy who, the, the writer who coined this term of predatory delay. I don't know if you've heard about this, but the students, I think, uh, Anna's nodding. She remembers predatory delay from, from my class. But it's this idea that, um, that there are uh, institutions and corporations uh, 
and special interests that uh, in whose interest it is to block needed action and to keep people in the dark about the urgency of our moment. And so it's important not to just blame people for their state of, of denial or blissful ignorance, because in some ways it is, it's, it has, those conditions have been purposely created by people in power. And that hence the term predatory delay, like it's not benign sort of inadvertent delay, it's actually by design. Uh, and so I, I don't know if that's a useful concept for your listeners, but I find it, found it kind of useful. And once you start, once you start um, looking around, you can notice predatory delay. Like you see it everywhere once you become aware of it. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to call on you, Anna. Give me yeah. an example of predatory <laughs> delay. Um, uh, so one thing I think we talked about um, fossil fuel companies. And I mean, well, actually, we we talked about the film like Merchants of Doubt, too, and, and uh, the book Merchants of Doubt. And I guess the kind of way that um, there are these like huge people with huge amounts of resources that are able to like influence the way that uh like these, what I guess would be like regulations in our government are um, passed. They're able to like, so like enough doubt that then these kinds of regulations are like um, pushed to the side or something like that, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, um, we now know that in the fossil fuel industry, they knew that, you know, climate change was happening way back in the 1950s. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I read that, I thought, oh, exactly. you know, that's when I was growing up. So we knew then, you know, in, in, you have to wind the film back. The 1950s were like post-World War II and, you know, everybody was back from the war and it was like, hey, you there, let's get married and boom, 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 we have kids. So I was a baby boomer and it was just go, go, go. And the economy was good and happy days are here again. And this thing was happening that we really were not cognizant of. Mm -hmm. And then this other thing was happening. Well, quite a few things were happening, but the other thing that I was aware of what after in that era in the 1950s era were uh, pesticides mm -hmm. and pesticides actually from my research evolved out of uh, uh, war chemicals mm -hmm. and so you know the brilliant idea was uh, they'll they'll kill insects we got to get rid of all those insects and it does make farming easier. They do control pests to a certain degree, but there's a radical shift in the ecology of the environment. Mm -hmm. So Heather, when you're teaching world toxic environments, and now you're gonna focus in on pesticides, what, what brought you there? Um, so I started teaching this global toxic history. That was the title of the class, which, which Anna took, um, maybe four or five years ago. Um, and part of it was, was scholarly 
you know, my interests were scholarly and, and part of it, I'll, I will admit, was personal. Um, and the personal piece was that uh, I was trying to sort of unravel the threads or like uh, solve the mystery of a family cancer story, um, which is that my mother and I were both diagnosed with different kinds of lymphoma, which is a blood cancer, uh, three weeks apart, which is a very odd to some people, they would say it's just an odd coincidence, an unfortunate coincidence. Um, but after my mother, she died quite quickly after that, uh, whereas I, uh, I, you know, was able to go into remission. And I guess I just, that was in 2015 that she died. And I started teaching the class a couple of years later as a way of just helping me process my own, you know, I kind of intellectualize things, you know, I'm a historian. I, I like to dig into what the deeper roots of, of things are. And, and I wanted to think about how scholars have studied um, the links between environments and cancer uh, over time. And I never, going into it, I never thought like, I'm gonna solve this mystery. I'm gonna find the culprit. Uh, you know, that might have uh, some common exposure between my mother and I. Uh, but it was sort of at the back of my mind as I formulated the, the idea for the class. And then the pesticides piece, um, uh, I just love growing vegetables. Uh, and I love living in a rural area. And I really enjoy going to my farmer's market and meeting farmers and thinking about local food sources uh, and so that, that I guess, was, um, had its personal side, too. And I just got more and more interested about the, in the links between a history of agriculture and a history of these toxic substances. Uh, and I wanted to kind of unravel uh, why uh, farmers have used pesticides for a very long time. I mean, the chemi chemicalization, as it's called, of, of American agriculture actually goes back really to the late 19th century. And it's not just the chemicals that came out of war research and, and wartime use, but also um, uh, efforts on the part of uh, industrial waste companies to find places to put their wastes. Uh, there's a great book on this by a historian named Adam Romero. Uh, who it's called Economic Poisoning. And it's all in that history of how the early pesticides, which were pioneered in places like California, were actually made of industrial waste products as a kind of sink, as he calls it, for those wastes. Um, so I just got really interested in that deeper history of how we got to where we are today, which, you know, is a really, we use a lot of chemicals in agriculture. And, uh, and I knew that lots of people had studied that from different perspectives, especially scientific or policy-oriented perspectives. But I just wanted to come at it from a more, um, humanities perspective, you know, that of a historian. And I really wanted to talk to farmers and understand uh, how they went about what I see as a really complex set of decisions and, and also how their parents and grandparents had navigated those decisions. Um, so I wasn't coming in to judge anyone's practices. Like, I'm not a farmer. I like to grow things in my backyard, but I'm not a farmer, um, nor are my family members. Uh, and so I came at it with a kind of humility in, in thinking about how difficult it is to be successful in agriculture today and wanting to understand that history of, of choices around chemical use from a, 
from a humanities perspective. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, I did some research on this, and they were actually using arsenic for a mm -hmm. pesticide. I think it was on uh, Very early. Yeah. potato bugs, potato you bugs. know, and, and that was way before World War II. Mm -hmm. But do you, if you don't mind my asking, do you think that your family was exposed to some toxic chemical that affected your health? I mean, can I know we can't be absolutely sure of any of this, but can you pinpoint any moments that, you know, come to mind? Uh, I can in a very sort of um, uncertain and ultimately futile way. So I, I did in the course of um, teaching my toxic history class, uh, I, I assigned to my students and, and of course read myself uh, a book about, um, oh no, this wasn't actually for toxic history. This is for the class Katie took me with, with me, um, an environmental history class. I read a book about the um, Chernobyl disaster, you know, in, uh, in Ukraine. And it's by a historian I really admire named Kate Brown. Um, and in that book, I was about halfway through it um, when I read about how the cloud of radio radioactive isotopes that resulted from the explosion of the reactor at Chernobyl uh, floated in very unpredictable ways according to the wind and it was deposited uh, across the lands of a huge swath of, uh, of Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe uh, and Southern Europe. And uh, and I read about some of the hotspots, uh, some of the countries that saw these huge, you know, kind of, uh, they were like red spots on the, on the map of radioactive fallout from Chernobyl. And I kind of like bolted upright as I was reading this because I realized that the year in which that had happened, you know, the disaster was in April, 1986. And in, uh, and in the book, it talked about how the, the radioactive fallout cloud was moving across those other parts of Europe in the summer of 1986. And I realized that I had been there um, on a family vacation when I was six years old. So with my mom and dad, uh, and we had gone to what was then Yugoslavia. Um, and uh, so I immediately started looking as one does uh, at the maps online of that cloud and talking to my dad um, about where we had gone on that trip. And I even had him pull out um, my old childhood passport, you know, which of course, like a good father, he had it in a drawer somewhere. Uh, and we looked at the dates um, to ascertain whether indeed it had been in the summer of 1986. Uh, and sure enough, uh, we had been there. And so, uh, I mean, of course, you know, millions of people were exposed to that fallout cloud but it is something that uh, I can be sure about, that both my mother and I, and of course my father, uh, do have this little piece of Chernobyl history inside of us. And I, although I don't, of course, there's no sort of uh, direct causal line there between that and a much later cancer diagnosis, it was just a, one more kind of experience that made me understand something that many people go through, which is this effort 
to like connect those dots. And I, and that phrase, the sort of idea of connecting the dots between exposures and later health problems is, is from Judith Helfond, who if you don't know her, you should look her up because I bet you would, she's a documentary filmmaker and a writer. Um, and, and she writes about that process in her own reproductive health struggles uh, in a really candid and, and even humorous way, which is sort of unexpected. Um, but yeah, I started being really inspired by people who talked openly about something that is often taboo, which is uh, cancer. And, uh, and I started trying to talk more openly about that uh, after a couple of years. Wow. Long yeah. Answer, no, yeah, no, no. It's so interesting. I, um, what came to mind, my mind was Sandra Steingraber's Living Downstream. Yeah, and she, was, she, yeah. she, she connected the dots, too, because she lived downstream of a Superfund site in Peoria, yeah. Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. No, I very much admire. I very much admire Sandra Steingraber's work. Um, she has this. I keep spewing book recommendations. I'm sorry to your listeners, but um, but her the book that most influenced me. She has many books, but um, but the one that I just keep returning to is this book called uh, Living Downstream, and I think the subtitle is something like uh, an ecologist's personal investigation of cancer or something. I'm probably getting that wrong, but. But she is an ecologist, and she has this kind of beautiful way of making the the science, you know, the biology of of um, of environmental contamination accessible to uh, lay people, you know, to non experts. Uh, that's like her superpower, and um, and she's still doing just amazing work on that front. No, she really is. She's a a biologist, I think her PhD is in biology, but she's a she's a fabulous writer who can bring in that research and that documentation and not, you know, put you to sleep. She's is really it's very gripping. Yeah. So any other books that would be no, I really I, I, I walked into this interview thinking we all know Rachel Carson and how her book raised the consciousness of so many people, especially in my era when we were living through that. Um, I remember there was a the Sunday newspaper, the Des Moines Register. There was a huge spread about that book, and you know her desire to raise awareness about the dangers of chemicals. And, and then, you know, in my later life, I taught environmental literature, did a kind of a research project on Rachel Carson and read everything I could about her. And she, she was a biologist. She was a marine biologist. And I read those fabulous books about the sea. You know, every Iowa kid sits here and reads, reads about the sea, it seemed like. But yeah, I was in love with those sea books. And then she read, wrote, you know, uh, this book about pesticides. And um, like, hmm, what goes on here? Well, as she was researching her sea book, she became more and more upset about what we were doing in agriculture and the chemicals in the environment. And she, <laughs> she didn't want to write the book herself. She herself had breast cancer. And so she went to 
one by one, her different science friends, science, scientist friends, and they, you know, nobody would touch it. Ah, da, 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 da. That's that's you know, you're 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 never going to get that book published, and if you do, everybody's going to shun you. And so reluctantly, she wrote the book herself, and that did happen. She was vilified all over the place, and oh, I remember seeing her on TV, and people just ridiculing her and, and she's sitting there doing through chemotherapy, you know, another chemical in a wig. And these people were making fun of her. And I thought, what is happening in this world? Really? You know, I was only 10, 12 years old. Um, but Sandra Steingraber seems to be, you know, a person that's carrying on the baton from Carson, are there any? I, I love the. I love your references. Are there any other books we should be reading? I mean, I really did enjoy Kate Brown's book. It was a lot of information that I hadn't really thought about before because I'd never studied Chernobyl or anything like that. I just sort of heard about it, but the the all of the stories that she brought in from different people who were discovering that they had been exposed to these different chemicals or like the one that I remember there was the lady who was picking all the radioactive blueberries and there was those radio piles of radioactive wool that couldn't be sold but also couldn't be transported anywhere else so they just sort of sat in this like side of the factory all of these different sort of personal things that she was able to bring in and present this really important work i I really appreciate that. Did she go into the animals in Chernobyl? That's a wild story, what's become of those animals. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I'm afraid I don't know much about that. You don't know anything about that. that. Well, the animals are still there, and um, they thought they would all die. And, you know, the dogs, the cats, the raccoons, da, 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 they just let, you know, when they walled everything off, they just left them, and they thought, oh, you know, they're be no, they have absolutely thrived. And it's like wild kingdom now, that, you know, they're running the place and they've bred and, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a phenomenon. Yeah. I just wanted to add to that, that um, Kate Brown is always asked, I think about like the wolves of Chernobyl and the wild animal, you know, the foxes and so on. And uh, I remember she gave a talk and I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting what she said, but, but she said that journalists love that story and the public loves that story because it does suggest that there's kind of like this silver lining to this really, you know, apocalyptic event. But if you dig into the science, you know, if you look at, um, for example, there are these bi really intrepid biologists who are going into the zone of exclusion around uh, the old abandoned plant. Um, and they're studying, you know, the sort of, um, the genetics of the surviving animal species there. And in fact, there's like rampant evidence of, of um, genetic damage, of reproductive problems, of, you know, all sorts of abnormalities that you, you would never see, you know, in a, in a normal population. And, and so, you know, the fact that they're, they're quote unquote thriving, I mean, to some extent, it's just because there aren't people, very many people around. There's like something like a couple hundred people living in that zone, many of them elderly women who refused to leave or who snuck back in uh, to live there. Uh, and, and really that's why there are animal populations. It's not that they've adapted to the radiation, it's that uh, they've taken advantage of a kind of ecological niche opened up by the human departure, but they're not, you know, they're not undamaged. Okay, good point. Yeah. 
That's that's very interesting. So as we wrap up here, I'd like to get a little snippet of what you're discovering here in Iowa in terms of families and pesticides. Do you have any? I know you've just begun your research. We hope to see you on another research trip. But um, what are some anecdotes or some things that you might be able to share with us? Well, we have only done three interviews because we arrived two days ago. So I won't frame this in terms of discoveries, but I can tell you that what we're doing is we're trying to interview different kinds of farmers um, who have very different perspectives on chemical use. Uh, some who have um, uh, family histories of farming and, and chemical use that they can describe to us. Um, and who can help us understand, you know, especially that time, uh, you know, in the World War II uh, to the present where you've seen this incredible expansion in, in use and in the, you know, in the varieties of chemicals uh, and the types of crops that are grown, you know, with the rise of, of uh, GMO varieties. Uh, and then what we're doing, which is maybe a little off the beaten track, so to speak, is uh, we're also going to archives. So um, here in Iowa City, uh, close to here, uh, we're going to the Iowa Women's Archive and the special collections uh, of the university library. Uh, and we're looking at this oral history collection, uh, oral histories that were mostly gathered in the early 2000s uh, of uh, farmers and uh, rural people. It's called the Voices from the Land Collection. Uh, and then in, in Ames uh, at Iowa State, we're going to go there soon uh, and look at, um, at, at other collections of, of uh, oral histories of farmers. So we're trying to kind of um, combine archival stories with stories that we're hearing in the present, you know, in, in 2023, and try to find connections between them and common patterns and also divergences. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I don't think we have any discoveries to share yet, but we're certainly hearing and reading a lot of stories of uh, the kind of the uh, changing generations of farmers and how they have approached these things differently from, you know, present day farmers who have uh, decided to go organic uh, and who have stories of their father's chemical use and exposure to, to harmful chemicals. Um, that's just one example that we heard this morning. Uh, and we're also hearing a lot of uh, stories of, of people talking about issues of, of water contamination um, that I think Iowa maybe is, is dealing with more than some of the other states we've looked at. Uh, so... Okay, that sounds like a great research project. And there are a lot of things in the archives that were researched 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that I would think would be helpful for you to get a perspective on. Wonderful. Well, we've been visiting here with Heather Roller and her two assistants, Anna and Katie from Colgate University. So we'll expect you back here. You're coming back in a year? Yeah, next summer. Next summer. Summer's in Iowa for researching pesticides and toxic environments. Thank you so much for coming.
I'm happy to announce that Buggy Land is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative, a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more. We're organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamak. Here I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Damon James. The Writers Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe. It's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Warner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Brouhaha. Or else I have to start playing the harmonica. <laughs> <laughs>